Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll read together verses 11 through 20. This is the word of God. And it reads, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will send to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Here ends the reading of God's word. Uh, We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Revelation. We're going to look together this morning at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are more than happy that you could be with us this morning. We look this morning at the Lord's words to the church In Tarsus, I mean in Sardis. Sardis. And the word of the Lord reads, chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask again now this morning as we enter into the living word that you would grant me the grace and the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to communicate the truth that's before us this morning. And indeed, Lord, we pray that you'll give your people ears to hear 
Lord, the context of what's here, what the scripture means by what it says. May they be edified, built up. I pray that there'll be repentance where there must be repentance, that there'll be encouragement and, and a strengthening where there is weakness, perhaps uncertainty, and confirmation, Lord, to those who suffer for your name, to be encouraged and built up today, we pray for your guidance now, in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord speaks to the church of the walking dead. They have a parent life. They have a reputation, quite a reputation at that. But you see, the Lord looks behind the reputation and he says, you're dead to the church of Sardis. What we read in this letter is swift and it's to the point. There's no commendation from the Lord for this church. Only rebuke. And it tells us very little about this church. But what we don't read in this letter tells us much about the church in Sardis. Just like the church in Thyatira, for which we studied last week, the city of Sardis was also infamous for its lively paganism. Sardis had its trade guilds, not unlike Thyatira, but there's no mention of social pressure against this church. See, to be part of the trade guild in that day, you profess Christ and stand against the pagan cultural ways and the pagan deities that were associated with those trade guilds, you didn't work. Like Pergamum, Sardis was also a city that gave prominence to emperor worship. Yet there's no martyrdom here. There's no threat of persecution here. Like Smyrna, Sardis also had a large unbelieving Jewish community. Yet there's no pressure made visible here to those that Jesus called a synagogue of Satan. We see no pressure from the Nicolaitans. We see no pressure from the self-proclaimed prophetess-like woman known as Jezebel. All that to say there's no mention of conflict with the unbelieving world towards this church whatsoever. But everyone seems to speak well of this church. This is one of those churches that's cool, man. It's hip. It's relevant. It's the happening place in town. But in the midst of an environment that is especially hostile to the gospel, Sardis nevertheless has a reputation. Not a reputation of being hated or resented, but notice as having programs and prestige, popularity. It's obviously not unpopular or detested by the case. You know, pagan community. It's an accepted gathering of people. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. I know what you do. I know you're busy. I know your works, but you have a reputation of being alive, but I see you as dead. Man, what an indictment. 
You see, where a church is at peace with its surrounding pagan culture, there can be no definitive witness for Jesus Christ, period. They're mutually exclusive. When the church's desire is to solicit the acceptance of the surrounding culture, the prophetic edge of the true gospel of Jesus Christ becomes very dull, very ineffective. The same is true of the Christian where he goes to work. The same is true for the Christian in his community college or state university amidst unbelieving neighbors. Friendship with the world is what? Hatred toward God. And that's why being a seeker-sensitive kind of church is so hazardous to the health of the church. And that's really the issue at hand here in Sardis. It's a cultural kind of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Or a culturally kind allegiance to Jesus and whoever you believe in. Where truth has to be toned down in order to be accepted, where the gospel has to be glossed over so that it's not abrasive but relative, the Lord sees that as deadness. (laughs) The setting is Sardis. Sardis was found centuries before Christ, it had a long distinguished history been one of the wealthiest cities of the past. It was the one-time capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And this was the place where they first minted silver and gold coins. It's in Sardis. Now, as you recall, each one of these seven churches listed was known for something that was invaluable in gaining spiritual insight to the church as a whole. The Lord pulls out or picks out something that it's noted for, and it makes... And it stresses a great point that has to do with spirituality. Now, Sardis was not known as a political source of power. It was not known for its institutions, for the intellectual. But it did have some commercial value. There were five roads that intersected in Sardis, so it was known for its commercial tradeability. So, at one time, it had become synonymous with affluence, wealth, and success. But by the time that the Lord speaks this letter, it had become most noted for its woolen garments. But more than anything else, beloved, Sardis had a reputation for once having a reputation. Sardis was most noted for once having a reputation. Because Sardis was once known as a city that appeared to be invincible. It was thought to be unconquerable. A fortress that no military team could overcome. It was a city that had many natural benefits, warding off military opposition and any kind of takeover. It was positioned at the end of a valley where it had three-faced, rock-faced walls that were 1,500 feet high above the valley floor with one entrance into the city. It looked impregnable, and it should have been, but it it was overtaken more than once. 
The security of ancient Sardis brought a certain level of of arrogant self-sufficiency. The people thinking within themselves that they were invincible, they let their guard down and they ceased setting watch in the tower. And in 549 BC, the Medo-Persians entered into that city under the leadership of Cyrus and they moved in as they lowered their guard and they overtook Sardis. Antiochus the Great also defeated Cyrus, Sardis, after Cyrus, catching them off guard in 218 BC. Once they were defeated like that, they never recovered their power. All they had was a reputation. So they defeated themselves. They f- defeated themselves for the lack of vigilance. On one occasion, a Sardinian soldier dropped his helmet as invaders were camped around these great sheer rock walls. So he goes down, he retrieves it, and the enemy watched him walk out, go down, pick up his helmet, and re-enter a secret cavern in that rock face. They followed him in, they overtook the city. So this once reputable city is what Jesus, is who rather, Jesus addresses. It's actually the church within the city. Notice the speaker, the spokesman, him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Notice Jesus claims to be the one who possesses the seven spirits. This does not mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, amen? Seven is simply symbolic for perfection or fullness. And this takes us back to the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 11 that talks about the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. So we understand this is an explicit statement regarding the Lord Jesus Christ's sovereignty over his church. He holds them in his hand because he owns them. They're his. So this is reaffirmation again of the Lord Jesus Christ's sovereignty put on display. He addresses the church and he addresses it because it's his. He bought her. And he reminds them that, look, our best days are ahead of us. Toil and labor now will be followed by an eternity of rest, beloved. So we must persevere, amen? We must remain persistent. But notice, the Lord provides no commendation for this church. There's nothing to commend. Now, his customary pattern thus far has been one of greeting, commendation, followed by correction. Warning. But notice here on your bulletin, we have the setting, we have the spokesman, and now we move to the sin. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, while each of the four previous churches begins with commendation, the church of Sardis, he begins with a stinging reprimand, harsh criticism here. He gets right to the point. He comes right out with words of confrontation. Imagine receiving this letter personally as a Christian. I thought about this this week. You, John, you have a reputation of being alive. You have a reputation for proclaiming my name. You have a reputation of following me, but I say you're dead. That'll take the wind out of your sails, amen? 
So Jesus, the sovereign Lord, declares this church as the church of the living dead. Flatline. This is not a warning of impending death. This is a statement. This is a declaration. You are D-E-A-D, dead, church of Sardis. So we see that things are not always as they appear. They're reported as being alive. But the one who looks from above, the one who looks within, the one who gets behind the surface, the one who pulls back the veil is the one who has laser precision eyesight. And he looks through the facade and he looks through it all to the division of soul and spirit, to the joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart where no creature, Hebrew says, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. It is he, Jesus, the word, who gives this frightening analysis to this church in Sardis. I know your works, reputation, you're dead. Now, can we tell the difference between the living and the dead, beloved, spiritually speaking? No, I think we think we can. If you watch long enough, I think sometimes you can discern so, but I think oftentimes that We look from the outside in and we say, well, they certainly appear to be living and active. They have this reputation because of this proclamation they make with their mouth. It's alive. We would have looked at Sardis and said, yeah, I think they're alive. They're active. The community loves them. They must be alive in Christ. Is it possible for churches today who take comfort in the liveliness of their charts or their goals or their programs or their numbers, their social achievements, is it possible that they're really dead? I think so. You see, many churches interpret life and success in the church by the number of people they have attending, by the energy that is stimulated by the gathering of those numbers and the massive activities that they provide. They have a reputation of being alive. And then it's easy for undiscerning eyes to look and what appears to be health, vigor, and life to be seen by Jesus is nothing but disease, drama, and death. See, the Lord knows how this church is spoken of. But he knows what's behind the veil. He knows motivation. He knows why we do what we do. He says, in effect, it's not enough to be affirmed by the community. It's not enough that the unbelieving pagan culture around you says, wow, what a great place. It's not enough to be known for doing things if there's no truth behind those things. Now, reputation is a good thing, and a good reputation a man ought to seek out and want, desire. His reputation should go before him. But along with the reputation must be the reality of that reputation, amen? If the substance is detached from that which appears to be, then the reputation must be held by pretense, a facade, a charade. You know, today there's this eco-friendly maxim that 
if you look at billboards or commercials, you know, those people who want you to be green, they say, just do something. That's their motto today. Be green, just do something. It's like the Nike motto, just do it. What I've noticed over the last couple of years anyway is that churches are adopting this motto. Just do something. Many churches throughout America, they want a reputation within the community of during, doing works. They perform these social gospel events. Um, somebody sends me a website they forward their, what they're doing, and it has a clicker of how many hours they're providing the community and doing all these philanthropic good. Now, just because you do those things, which is, can be good, doesn't mean you're a dead church. All I'm saying is, those things in themselves do not prove that you're living. The church at Sardis, the point is here that they had works. They apparently had many works, albeit without divine approval. So their works, just doing something, was not in accord with anything that God required. So in spite of their achievement here of of, of having a name, it was all pretense. It was all make-believe. And the Lord, with his fiery eyes, looks right through them. So we see here that busyness and industry in itself is of no value. Their work and reputation was unacceptable. To the Lord, it was dead. He said, I have found your works incomplete. I have not found them to be complete. Not of me. So here the Lord begins with an indictment. And let me just say this, if you're a believer here this morning and you're in this valley of spiritual dryness, deadness, you're you're here but you're not here, you have no desire to read the word, you've just kind of dried up, be encouraged because he provides a solution here for you this morning. Five points, five commands to the solution. Number one, he says, wake up. Wake up, verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now notice, beloved, what the Lord addresses here isn't always about outward wickedness. It's not always about blatantly false doctrine, which he has addressed in the other churches. It's not always about some heinous sin, that Jesus is concerned about. But here, beloved, he's addressing a general kind of ambivalent numbness to spiritual matters. Numbness. Like, when they cut my head open this week, I think they went a little deep because I have no feeling in about a quarter of my skull. That's not good. And I'll find out Monday when I go to the doctor, what did they do here? You know, my head itches and I can feel it and I want to scratch it, but I cannot locate and it just itches and I can't get it. A lot of Christians are like that, numb. I feel bad for my wife for the rest of her life. She'll be married to a numb skull (laughs) if they don't figure this thing out. The Lord, bottom line, the Lord is not addressing some outward wickedness here, fornication, adultery, or spiritual idolatry per se. He's addressing a certain numbness, lethargy within his people. 
He's referring to an overall kind of deadness, a zoning out. Unprotected, unwise, lethargic, not unlike the city they dwelt in, just sitting there passively saying, who could possibly scale these 1,500 foot sheer rock walls and overtake us? That brought to mind the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah and the Edomites. The Lord addresses them, Obadiah 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And he ransacked that place. He said, it would be better if a thief would have overtaken you and ransacked you because they would have left something. I will leave nothing. Now, sad to say, at the time of Revelation, Sardis was a mere shadow of what it once was. Worse yet was the church within the city. They had become lethargically comparable to that once mighty fortress that had a reputation for once being mighty, living off the momentum of the past. Now something happened to obstruct further progress for this church. They were slowed down. They stopped. They became numb. So the first command, beloved, if if you're in this place, wake up, okay? Number two, second command, work out. Work out. They're called to notice, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So he uses a technical word here, often used in the New Testament, to to nurture or to pasture. You pasture a flock. Jesus uses this word in Luke 22 when he talks to Peter, who's going to deny him three times. He said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen... Your brethren. Paul uses the word in Romans 1, verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So it's not enough to wake up here. You wake up and then you get moving. You begin to make headway. You see, that's what he's calling them to do. Don't just wake up, throw the covers off, get out of bed, start moving. Actually, to them, he's saying, get out of your casket. You're not in a bed, you're dead. Get out of your casket. And move, strengthen, work out. First Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, that young pastor, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You can work out like a mad woman or like a mad man. Great diet, great with the weights, great cardiovascular, you will not add one day to your life. You will die on time (laughs) as predetermined by God. So a little bit of working out is good in that it adds to the quality of your life while you are alive, but it will not add a day to your life. However, spiritually speaking, working out your spiritual muscles, notice, it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this boils down to the basics of spiritual life, beloved, studying the Bible. 
Well, it's really boring. You know why? It's boring because you don't understand what's in it. If you don't understand what it means by what it says, it's going to be boring. So get yourself some resources to study. You come and you ask me, you ask one of the elders, we will give you or lead you to, that you buy yourself, resources to help you understand the meaning of the text. Along with prayer, along with worship, along with fellowship with one another. You need the body of Christ. That's one of the ways that we are strengthened, encouraged, exhorted, reproved sometimes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but beware of the kisses of the enemy. So get out of this deathbed, the Lord says. Get dressed, get moving, get some exercise and grow. See, Sardis was captured unaware. And just as Sardis was captured unaware, we can possibly be overtaken unaware as well. So you need to wake up, actually get out of the casket. You know, the Lord spoke to uh, Israel before entering the promised land in Deuteronomy 30, from which Aaron read this morning. He said, verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may, what? May live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. Why? He is your life. And your length of days. He's life. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You have life because you're in him, and you're in him because he's in you. It's his life in you. It's his life in us. Jesus says here, look, you've begun many things, Sardis, but you've not finished. You started the race, but you stopped. Notice, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You know a lot of churches, beloved, that don't preach the word today? You'll go there and you hear a bunch of funny stories and you will not hear them breaking down the word of God. You know that they, many of them started out saying, we will preach the word of God. They meant well. They started out well. But because of popular demand, because they listened to a bunch of sick, complaining sheep who sound like calves dying in a hailstorm who don't want to hear the word of God, They don't want a nutritious diet. They want to be entertained. They lend ear to the flock rather than to the word of God that says, teach my word in season and out of season. That means always. When it's popular and when it's not popular, preach the word. So many churches start out that way and they don't finish that way. Many believers start out reading their Bible. They have a Bible devotional time. They pray, they study, they listen to sermons, they want to listen to lectures, they have this newfound fire, and all of a sudden their affections take a turn. This is an uncompleted commitment. That's the reality of nominal Christianity. You know, one thing I never want is for nominal Christians to come here. I want them to come here, but I want nominal Christians to come here and be absolutely uncomfortable. Miserable, actually, until they repent. To where they will receive the nourishment that comes from the word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to grow thereby, you see. If a nominal Christian who's just kind of lazadaisical, right, can be comfortable in a church, they're not preaching the word. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. So although this group considered themselves as being spiritually alive and spiritually 
they stood there and were receiving the accolades of the unbelieving culture around them. And Jesus said, yeah, but you're dead. You're popular, but you're dead. They became lethargic. They had a quiet, guarded kind of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Don't let Jesus out of the bag. We'll just keep him. Here's, he's our Sunday guy. That's my Christian life. I break him out on Sunday. Oh, and on Bible study night. This is nothing less than easy believism. Many professing Christians and confessing churches start well, they mean well, but they do not end well. This is not unlike the parable of the sower spoken by Jesus. Sower went out, sowed some seed. Speaking of those by, by all appearances, they seem to start well, but they die. Matthew 13, hear then the parable of the sower, Jesus said. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Well, when Paul wrote Timothy in his own valediction, you know what Paul said about his own life? He said in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. This is what we want to be reminded of. So this must be our goal. This is what we want to be our prayer. This must be our exhortation. This must be a congregational reality at Pacific Hope Church to encourage one another, keep on brother, keep on sister. Let's finish strong. Strengthen what you have. Strengthen what remains. Complete it. So there we have wake up. There we have work out. Thirdly, remembrance. Remembrance, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. You know, a great deal of the Christian life is all about remembering, beloved. That's why I say, like Paul and Peter, I do not cease to remind you of these things. So much of the church's health comes by way of remembrance. When we come to the Lord's table together, what are we doing? Do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus. So recollecting past blessings is really at the heart of covenant life. Covenant, this eternal covenant, covenantal promise that God has with his own. Before Israel found themselves in the promised land, what were they called to do? Remember. I want you to remember the past 40 years, Israel, Deuteronomy 8, and you shall remember the whole way, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. So their power and their strength to advance here would be hindered by a faulty memory. How many of us neglect to remember all the goodness of God in Christ to bring us to the place of brokenness, granting us repentance, enabling us to believe because of what he did on Calvary. Remembering that he bore the wrath of the Father, that he shed his blood in order to cover you, to make a way for you, to give you life. So we're called to remember. 
We're called to remember, beloved, who we are and whose we are. Remember that, you young folks, when you go out with your friends to your parties or wherever you go, remember, if you are a Christian, you remember who you are and whose you are when you go. Amen? That will dictate what you do and don't do if you truly immerse yourself in who you are because of whose you are. Blood-bought saint. Sinner saved by grace. That's who you are because of Christ. That's whose you are. So we must remember. Fourth, embrace the truth. Embrace the truth. Remember then what you received and heard and keep it. Keeping what has been entrusted. Keeping what has been invested in us by him for his glory. This is an appeal to obey God's word. To keep his commandments. Why? Because we can. You know, beloved, as a Christian, you're enabled to obey. Because Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He bought you, he paid for you, he transformed you. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're enabled to obey. He will not give you commandments you can't uphold. And with every temptation, he always leaves the way of escape. You may have to run, but it's a way of escape, amen? There's an open door to run out. So he's saying here, keep his word, put it into practice. Get back to active obedience, Sardis. Keep it. Obey. You know, it's said that spiritual dryness and disobedience go hand in hand. They're like twin sisters. Where you find one, you find the other. So if you're dried up spiritually, typically you're walking in disobedience. If you are walking in disobedience, you are no doubt spiritually dry. Just like that. And then he gives the overall solution to the problem. Number five, simply repent. Repent. This calls for an immediate decision to turn around, to come back to Christ with one's whole heart. See, repent means to have a change of thinking. You've been thinking in this direction. You've been thinking about these things. And the reason you do what you do is because of the way you think. So you must change your thinking. You must repent. So repentance calls for a swift, decisive change of thought, a change of devotion, a change of behavior. Begins with confessing the sin of spiritual laziness. Oftentimes, I'll find myself confessing laziness in prayer, like diligent, focused prayer. Confessing that, turning from it, immersing oneself in devotion to Christ. You know what? Why it's so difficult? Because it requires letting go of the world. Talking about for the believer, letting go of the world. Becoming reattached. Story of a little boy who got his hand stuck in his mother's favorite vase. And this vase was passed down from grandma, so it was very valuable to her. The little kid gets his hand stuck in it. She tries soap suds, she tries shampoo, she tries cooking oil. Nothing will release this kid's hand from this vase. So finally she grabs a hammer. She's ready to break the family heirloom. And this wide-eyed little boy looks up and goes, Mama, 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 wait. Will it help if I let go of the pennies? 
made a fist, couldn't get his hand out. That's how they make monkey traps in Asia and Africa. A little wooden box with a hole in it, just small enough for the monkey to get his hand in there. They put enough peanuts in there, just enough to, to tempt this monkey. So the monkey reaches his hand in, he grabs the peanuts, makes a fist, and the hunter comes along, clocks him on the head. He's dead. Wouldn't let go of the peanuts. If he would have let go of the peanuts, he could have released his hand. And all too often, we follow the same problem. Won't let go of that sin. Willing to risk what is truly valuable is we fall asleep with a clenched fist. So Jesus says here, look, if you don't wake up, if you don't turn, I will come to you like a what? Like a thief. When do thieves come into the home? When the victim least expects their arrival. My coming to you will not be preceded by any sign. Now, this is not referring to the parousia. This is not referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ because the second coming of Jesus Christ is not dependent upon the church's repentance. This is a special coming to judge those who profess his name. Discipline. How and when he comes, he doesn't say, but he will. And it will be like a thief when you least expect it. See, many Christians over time, they began, but they never finished. They had a name, but they were not alive. So he says, I'll come like a thief. And this language is reminiscent of Matthew chapter 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3. The context here is different, but the nearness and the authority of the threat is crystal clear. I will come like a thief. You will not know. You have a reputation for being alive, but I see you as you truly are. You're dead, so I must come. So wake up, work out, remember, embrace the truth and repent. Notice now those who are the steadfast. Notice the steadfast. These are the faithful remnant. Verse four, these people are within the church of Sardis that overall is dead. He said, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Here's the sweet doctrine of God's holy remnant. We see it crop up in scripture repeatedly. This encourages the faithful who who are dwelling in the midst of those who, who seem to be bringing upon themselves doom and gloom. Christians who are running faithfully amidst those that are not. And these few people are the ones who keep hope alive in the midst of this cemetery, you see. The death of stench surrounds them. But here they are, alive, the faithful few. Now notice the soiled garments here. This is a biblical term for a moral behavior. It doesn't say what that was. This could be the tolerance of sin within the church. And the Lord says he'll discipline churches who don't discipline sin in the church. A lot of churches don't perform church discipline today. They don't want to offend. Well, that's intolerable to the Lord. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
But even the faithful in the midst of the dead can succumb to some degree to this kind of lazy slumber. It's infectious. They become entranced by this, the, the hypnotic fumes of the spiritually dead around them. But even so, in the midst of it, according to Jesus, within this declining, compromised, dead congregation, there are still his faithful few who have not soiled their garments. And with them, he says, he will walk in white. Why? Because they're worthy. Leading those who continue, leading those who persevere, leading those who conquer to the end faithfully. And that leads us to the successors. Verse 5. Now, the one who conquers, Jesus said, will be clothed, notice, not with soiled garments, but they will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The context here is the great wedding feast of the Lord. And those who not only begin, but finish, those who not only have a reputation, but live up to that reputation, actually have spiritual life, they will be at the table with the Lord. They will be clothed in white where those without proper attire will be cast out. Jesus told the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. Jesus said, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? His response, he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In the place, there will be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Just like Matthew 7. On the last day, Jesus said, many are going to cry out and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, they're going to call me Lord. They'll refer to me as Lord. We did this in your name and we did this in your name. And then Jesus is going to reply, depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Though you claim to know me, I never knew you. You have soiled garments. Not a wedding garment. We were never married. So those truly in Christ not only have a reputation for being in Christ, they actually are in Christ. That's the reality. Properly clothed. They're clothed, beloved, in something that they could never possess or provide for themselves. They're cloaked in white robes, Christ's righteousness, granted by grace, properly adorned in positional righteousness, one day to be adorned in glorified righteousness. You see, that's how God sees you now. Those of you who are in Christ, you are cloaked in his righteous robes. Positionally, you stand perfect in his sight because of Christ. One day to be glorified in his presence. That's the finish line. And notice... And he said, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, your typical Arminian at this point will say, see, your name can be blotted out. Wrong. See, he writes everyone's name in the book of life. And then if you neglect to choose him, then he, based on what you choose to do or don't do, then he erases your name. Wrong. little history. Number one, in the Old Testament, to be blotted out of the book on earth simply meant to die. 
That is to be blotted out from the national register of Israel. You remember Moses, he, he was pleading on behalf of idolatrous Israel. In Exodus 32, he says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, meaning this life. And then he went on to slay a bunch of idolaters. Here, beloved, here, genuine believers have already been written down in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation tells us that he wrote those names when? Before the foundation of the earth, Revelation 13. No one enters into eternity whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Yes, that's called divine election. Yes, that's what he did. This is not a threat. This is not a threat that someone's name will be erased that once was written. No. It's a promise that it will never be erased because it was written. See the difference? This is a promise to those who conquer, who will be clothed in white. The reason they conquer and are clothed in white is because he placed their name there before the foundation of the earth. The others who profess the name of Jesus, whose lifestyle fails to support this profession of faith, never had their names recorded in the book of life in the first place. So this is not a threat to those whose names are not written, but this is a promise to those whose names who are. This is a positive promise stated in a double negative. Never blot. I will never blot. I will not erase. So the positive guarantee of internal inheritance is expressed in the negative. I promise I never, ever, ever will blot out your name. How encouraging is that, believer? Never will your name be blotted out. It can't be. It's eternal. So the positive guarantee of internal inheritance is expressed, again, in the negative. Never. Anyone else will be recognized as a counterfeit. I never knew you. But those who are clothed in white, notice, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they, you, have an advocate. He's our heavenly high priest. It's Jesus Christ. And those who are disciples that are tested, the Lord Jesus Christ will in the end prove them to be authentic. Why? Because he stands in their place and he says, mine. Notice, verse 5. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In other words, bottom line, you can't lose salvation. If you're saved, you know, they say once saved, always saved, right? Well, yes, of course. That's why it's called eternal life. But just because someone says they're in Christ doesn't mean they're truly in Christ. They have a reputation of being saved, but the Lord says, no, you're not, you're dead. They say, Lord, Lord, but they're not the Lord's, I never knew you. This is eternal. This is finalized. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He's our great high priest, our advocate. At the final judgment, Christ will confess all true believers as his blood-bought, your mine. Whereas all fakes and frauds will be excluded from his presence. 
Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the eternal consequence for those who deny Christ on earth is far worse than the persecution they thought to avoid here on earth. This has to do with your witness for Christ. Our witness for Jesus Christ. We must be living witnesses, beloved. And what I don't want you to mistake is being a witness for being an evangelist. Okay, we're called to be living witnesses, to be a witness. And out of being a witness for Christ comes evangelistic effort. You see? So being a witness is different than an evangelist. So when I use the term, what kind of witness are you? I'm not talking about, you know, those bold Christians that sit somewhere in here who are always out at the parks and out in public, you know, proclaiming the gospel. Not everyone's called to do that at that level, okay? We're called to be a witness, number one. And in the process of being a witness, where you work, where did you go to school, within your family, you will be given the opportunity to proclaim Christ and his gospel. Amen? So being a living witness, you have life, and it's eternal life dwelling within you. Now, apparently, many in Sardis were ashamed to publicly live for Christ, to publicly confess Christ. That became evident. So to wrap this up, here he gives the summons in verse 6. You have the steadfast, you have the successors in the end, and here's the summons, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is an individual call. To all churches, plural, from throughout all time, an invitation for each here now to respond. The letter is clearly addressed regarding the danger of spiritual deadness, spiritual lethargy. He's just threatened a church that's compromised. He's just threatened a church that has a reputation of being lively, of being active, being program friendly, but in all reality, they're dead. So devotion to Jesus was stagnant. Those who have ears must not only hear what he says, but they must do. All those who make a profession of faith have life in Christ. That's their reputation. So we must work out that which has been worked in. Amen? And that's what he's calling them to do. So all that to say, what we must do regularly is this. We just do this. Because of who we profess, we must take our spiritual pulse. Is there this kind of life flowing through me? Is this the life of Christ in me? Is this the life of Christ through me? All who have ears, let him hear. So this is a lesson that is unmistakably relevant for each one of us, beloved. We can bear the name church, we can bear the name Christian, having a reputation for being alive, but in all reality, we can be dead. So perhaps this morning you're here and you're dried up, spiritually dried up, like a desert. Erosion has overtaken your devotional life. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged, number one, that the Lord has you here by his divine providence to hear this message. You know, you've been attending service for some time and uh, it's not what it used to be. It feels empty and it feels rote. 
You've sunk into this deep spiritual sleep. It's good that he has you here. You have a profession of faith, but it's lifeless. It's empty. It's become superficial. As a reminder to wrap up, if that's you, beloved, and I think all of us go through little seasons of that. Wake up from spiritual hibernation. Okay, this word alone will wake you up, amen? It will awaken you to go, man, that is me. Crawl out of the casket, okay? It's not a bed if he said you're dead. Crawl out of the casket. Once you wake up, get out of the casket, start working out, spiritually working out. The word of God. Prayer, yeah, but I do it. Man, pastor, I just don't feel like it. That's okay. Keep doing it. And eventually you'll start feeling like it. It's like you worked out in your 20s. You were in great shape, great diet, you know, six pack. Couldn't wait to just put your tank top on and go show everyone (laughs) how great you look. And now you're 35 and you haven't worked out for six years. It's grueling to go back into the gym. The first day, you, you, you know, you have all this adrenaline flowing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You feel terrible. They do. Day three, you feel worse. Then you go back to the gym and you're just kind of dragging your feet. But if you keep at it, what? A month later, two months later, you feel better. You look better. You see results. So what? It's encouragement. Keep going. Wake up, get out of the casket, work out, remember what you've received from Christ. You've received grace. There's not one thing you did to earn your salvation. Nothing. Nothing. And if you think that you did anything to earn salvation or that you play a part in it, you need to see me. We're going to set your doctrine straight. It's all grace and grace alone. Remember that. Remember the cross. You go back and you read Isaiah 53 and you look what he did on behalf of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You remember the price he prayed and then you embrace it. You keep it. You wrap your arms around it and you don't let go. When you're tempted, you remember. You remember. You keep. And overall, you turn. My thinking, man, is for the entertainment world. That's all I can think about. Repent. Have a change of thinking. Realign your thinking with the word of God. Wake up, work out, remember, embrace it, repent. Amen? Amen. So be encouraged if that's you. Don't walk around, don't walk out of here feeling you came in as a brooder's reed and you got kicked. Right? This is exhortation, encouragement to lift you up. For those of you that are the faithful remnant, it's very simple. Keep on. Keep walking, keep running, don't look back, keep fighting. You may come out with a lump on your head, you may come out with a black eye, spiritually speaking, keep on going. Seek fellowship, don't retreat from fellowship. Keep your eyes affixed on the prize. There's a finish line. May we not, bottom line, may we not, Anyone at Pacific Hope or that's associated with Pacific Hope, anyone in Christ, may we not have a reputation for once having a reputation. Amen? Like Sardis. Run. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder through a very 
old and poignant letter given to the church of Sardis. Lord, we, any one of us, I'm sure, would be quick to admit that uh, we have gone through seasons of dryness like this. So maybe we'd be quick to take our spiritual pulse, not by the accolades of the culture, but by the living word of God. I pray that your church would be encouraged this morning. Those who came in dry, I pray that they would be watered, refreshed, encouraged, reminded, Lord, of the great price that was paid. And regardless of their disobedience for those who are in Christ, their name never will be blotted out. And because it will never be blotted out, may they be reminded that they will be cloaked in white robes of glorious, eternal righteousness because they, in your mind and according to your word, already are cloaked in those righteous robes. Paid for by your son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. May you build them up today, strengthen us all. Guard us, Lord, from the presumptuous sin that the city of Sardis had, thinking themselves to be such a stronghold they could never be overtaken. And before we know it, they'll come in through the secret door. Help us, Lord, to hold on and to embrace the truth, to always remember that which you have accomplished on our behalf so that we are able to run, to run with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Pray that everyone would leave here built up and encouraged today. For anyone who's here that are dead in trespasses and sins, not being saved, I pray that they would see their desperate need for you. I pray that you would move in their heart to bring them to a place of seeing for the first time their desperate need for Jesus Christ, that you'll grant them the repentance and ability to believe, open their eyes, transform their heart, take out a heart of stone. We ask that you replace it with a heart of flesh, the Spirit of God to indwell and overtake their lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.